Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew again. Matthew chapter 17. The modern explosion in global missions can be traced back to, in human terms, just six famous words. Six famous words that exploded into the gospel going further than we've ever seen it gone before. Those words were uttered in a sermon by William Carey in 1792 before he left England for India. It was a sermon based on Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Sadly, we don't have a preserved copy of Mr. Carey's sermon. It was lost to history. But what has been preserved are two exhortations that he repeated throughout that message. These are the six words that are really attributed with the explosion in modern missions. They are expect great things, attempt great things. He's preaching about God, right? So expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. William Stratton was a contemporary of Carey's and one of the men who helped found the missionary society that Carey was sent out with. And years later, reflecting on this sermon and exhortation, Strott made this comment. He said, this six-word watchword was a challenge to many and remains a challenge to the present-day church. Human strength and human schemes will fail in the expansion of God's kingdom. It must be God's work. Thus the need to pray and expect great things from God. But to sit blithely by and wait for God to act without us is equally wrong-headed. We must pray... And then trusting God completely, get going and attempt great things. Just as Debbie exhorted us to do. We have to get going, we have to go, and we have to attempt things for God. This expectation and effort is the life of faith. The life of faith that honors God and that God honors. Expect great things from God and then trusting in Him completely, get going and attempt great things for Him. Faith is very important in the Christian life. Through our study of Matthew, we have seen this brought out frequently. Jesus has commended those with faith, and He has condemned those without it. And we read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith is very important in the Christian life, which means consequently, the absence of faith, the want of faith, is very detrimental. Charles Bridges was a pastor in the 1800s, and he wrote my favorite book on pastoral ministry, In it, he writes the following, All our failures, all our failures may be ultimately traced to a defect of faith. We ask, but for little. We expect, but little. We are satisfied with little. And therefore we gain and do but little. Faith is very important in the Christian life. A sound confidence in God is the source of all our strength and all our victories, and the lack of faith is the source of all our failures. Today we're looking at one of the most significant passages in Scripture on living a life of faith. It's a very famous passage about having faith like a mustard seed, And that's what I've entitled this message, Faith Like a Mustard Seed. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. And I believe God really wants to strengthen faith here today. So let's 
expect great things during this message before we go out and attempt great things this week. Please follow along as I read our passage. Again, Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. This is what Holy Scripture says. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. This passage starts a new section in Matthew's Gospel running from here, where we are today, through the end of chapter 20, we find our Lord instructing the twelve specifically. He's turning from the crowds to training His disciples, and He's giving them principles to live by in His kingdom. One commentator said of this section of Matthew, Jesus has given His disciples a revelation of His person as King, He has given them a revelation of his program for the kingdom, and now he gives them a revelation of the principles for living in that kingdom. And so we find ourselves here today and for the next number of weeks looking at very important and very useful principles in this part of Matthew. Just to give you a preview of what's to come, we find here today a lesson about living a life of faith, and then next week we'll see him teaching about a citizenship, about living in this world, but as citizens of heaven. Then in chapter 18, he teaches them about humility and about temptation to sin and about what to do when another Christian sins against you, about church discipline and about forgiving one another. In chapter 19, Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce and about children and about uh, wealth. Then in chapter 20, he teaches us about rewards in his kingdom and position in his kingdom and finally about compassion in his kingdom. And then, interestingly, sprinkled all between these lessons in different places periodically, Jesus keeps bringing up his death, like we see in our passage here today. He keeps reminding them, the cross is before you, death is coming. In fact, all these lessons are taught on the road as Jesus is leading his disciples towards Jerusalem. He's Reminding them what's coming ahead of them. So we're in a very practical and useful part of Matthew's gospel. Principles to live by in Jesus' kingdom. And the first is the life of faith. That we must live a life of faith. And so I have three headings for us to work through in this passage. Three headings. Actually, there's four, but I kind of squished the fourth into the conclusion for the sake of time. And so... Three and a half, maybe, we'll work with today. We'll see. At least three. A spiritual problem is the first one. Number one, a spiritual problem. Verses 14 through 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures. And he 
suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. It's been observed by more than one student of Scripture that there's something striking about this story following Jesus' transfiguration. Stories recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in each it follows directly after the transfiguration. We go from the Mount of Splendor down into this Valley of Despair. Really, it's from the the realm of heaven's sweetness to the realm of demonic torment. From the display of glory down to the display of disease and desperation in the midst of man's present fallen state. It's a striking parallel. So Jesus came down from the mountain and he has the three disciples who went up there with him, Peter, James, and John, and we're told he came upon a crowd. Mark fills out the picture in his account a little more, telling us that Jesus finds a crowd gather around the nine disciples who were left behind, and they are arguing with scribes, the experts in the law. So the disciples and the scribes, they're arguing, there's a crowd gathered around them, and Mark tells us, Jesus says, what are you arguing about? What's this commotion about? What's going on here? What's the calamity? What's the issue? And that's when this man, this father of this sick son, comes forward and says, essentially, it has to do with me. They were arguing over something to do with this man and his boy. Matthew tells us this man came to Jesus and knelt before him. So he humbled himself before Jesus, and then he called out to him saying, Lord, Lord. So you can see he really held Jesus in high esteem. In fact, in Mark's account, we're told this is the man who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. So this is a man who honored Jesus, humbled himself before Jesus. He believed in Jesus, and he came to Jesus for help. He cried out saying, have mercy, have mercy on my son. Mark tells us he cried out, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Luke tells us that the man begged Jesus for help. Begged him. This is a dad in agony for his son. And so he pleads with Jesus. And and when you put Matthew's account together with Mark and Luke's account, you really begin to, to get a picture about why this man and his boy are in such agony. Verse 14 says that the boy has seizures. Literally, it says he's moonstruck. He's moonstruck. Back then they believed that certain strange behaviors were caused by the moon. And it's actually where we get the idea lunatic from. Luna having to do with moon. Something causing a craziness that we can't explain. And so it was a word back then in Jesus' day used to describe people who experienced convulsions and seizures. The father adds that the boy, he suffers terribly. Meaning this is not... A mild case. This is not the occasional thing. This is this is a severe situation. In fact, I mean, think about it. He says, for he often falls into fire. It's not in danger of falling into fire. He often falls into fire and often into the water. Maybe a well or maybe the sea they live by. And Mark tells us earlier in the story than Matthew does. Matthew, we figured out later, but Mark tells us right at the the forefront. It's because this boy has a demon. And so it seems like the demon has murderous intent. He's throwing the boy into the fire. And he's throwing him into water. And Mark also tells us that the boy is, is caused to be deaf and dumb by this demon. He can't hear or speak. And that it's the demon who literally seizes him and throws him down. Literally, he says, thrashes him around. Mark also tells us the demon would cause him to foam at the mouth and to gnash his teeth. Luke adds that the dad could hardly leave his side. It was so dangerous. So you you can imagine the scene. This boy, he's, he's constantly seized and thrown to the floor. He's writhing in the dirt. His whole body seizing up. 
He's being thrown into the fire inexplicably, thrown into the water. This poor dad can't ever lead his side. It's a heartbreaking situation. And the dad even pleads with Jesus, telling him in Luke, and this is my only son. It's my only boy. And I can't do anything to help him. And your disciples can't do anything to help him. Jesus, can you, if there's anything you can do, have mercy on us. Maybe to make it worse, Mark tells us it was specifically an, an unclean, foul spirit. Suggesting that it, it may have caused the boy to other profanities or to act lewdly or licentiously. It's gross. And in Mark, Jesus asked the father, how long has he been like this? And the father says, since childhood, pretty much his whole life. And so this father had sought the help of Jesus' disciples. Maybe they could help. He knew this was a spiritual problem, and he hoped they could deal with it, that they could heal him, but they failed. They could not heal him, and so this father pleads with Jesus. We can almost imagine this scene with this crowd, and the disciples are arguing, and this dad is distraught, and, and then finally Jesus is seen coming down the mountain, and I just imagine the dad inside just going, oh, thank you, Lord, thank God he's here. And as soon as Jesus is there, he's throwing himself at his feet, Jesus, help us. Jesus, help Now, we're going to talk about the disciples' failure here in just a minute. That's a big part of what sets up the lesson that they need to learn. But I don't want to rush past the fact that that this story, though it's, it's not primarily about demons, there is a demonic element here. And the Father understands this is a spiritual problem. And I'm afraid this might be something that we easily overlook. That perhaps the cause of many of our problems aren't physical, but are spiritual. We live in a day that wants to believe that every problem is physical, natural. And there are physical problems, there are natural problems, but there are also spiritual problems. And probably more of our problems are spiritual then we realize the spiritual problem of a harassing demon, it is a real and still relevant problem. The spiritual problem of unrepentant sin, the spiritual problem of unforgiveness and bitterness that defile many, the spiritual problem, as we'll see shortly in this passage, focused on today, of little faith. Little faith. Living in a materialistic culture, or materialist culture, we have to be careful not to overlook spiritual problems in our life. That not everything is a physical problem. Something that can be fixed by working hard or doing better, improving more, trying this or trying that. Spiritual problems must have spiritual solutions. So, evaluate your life. Take stock of your life this morning and this week as you reflect. Are there any problems you have, anything that you are wrestling with presently, that you keep trying to solve as if the problem were only physical or natural? Maybe a relationship. You keep trying to fix. You keep trying to do better at. You keep trying to approach them a different way when really the problem is you're bringing pride into the relationship or selfish ambition. Or maybe you're health anxious. Those heart palpitations might mean an impending cardiac arrest or that strange colored mole maybe is a malignant melanoma or the mild headache. Perhaps they're evidence of a brain tumor. And so you run to what? Someone in first service said it out. Your doctor. To which I said, no. Google. <laughs> right? You check Sympt or Alexa. <laughs> it's like Google on speed dial. Checking for symptoms, checking for statistics, checking for a solution. 
But what do you need? In that situation, you need God's peace. The problem is primarily spiritual. And it needs a spiritual solution. So, the first takeaway from our passage today is to not overlook spiritual problems in our lives. Because they need spiritual solutions. This leads us to the second point this morning, a startling rebuke. A startling rebuke. This father is in a state of tremendous distress. The disciples have failed and are confused. Jesus' enemies are present and on the tack. There's a a crowd gathered around watching. And we come to verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Now I think if we're honest, verse 17 is not what we would expect. Is it? The startling rebuke from Jesus. I think we'd expect something like, We've read before, you know, and his he had compassion on him, or you know, immediately would say, "Bring him here to me." And Jesus would, but we get this startling rebuke, kind of uncharacteristic. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I don't think it's wrong to describe what we read here as holy frustration. Or maybe even better, still, holy grief. Holy grief. Jesus is grieved. We should be reminded that God can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30, we're warned that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Jesus is upset in this passage, we're told, over their unbelief. Oh, faithless. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Unbelief characterized that generation, just like it characterizes every generation, including our own. But don't forget what occasioned Jesus' grief in this passage. It wasn't the unbelief of the crowd as much as it was the unbelief of his own disciples, unable to heal this man. This, this is what really set him off, that Jesus' closest followers were unable to help this father and heal his son. And when they asked him later uh, why they couldn't do it, Jesus didn't say to them, well, it's because this demon was too strong for you. It's because this was a mountain too big for you to move, because this was, this was something too hard for you. It needed me, the specialist, to come in. No, he says the problem is your little faith. So there's the unbelief of the generation and there's the ineffective little faith of his own followers. And this is all the more pointed when we remember back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called the same 12 to himself and verse 1 says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then a few verses later, Matthew 10, verse 7, Jesus commissioned them saying, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So they have been commissioned to do this. They have been empowered to do this. And yet here they are and they cannot do it. And what's even more startling is to realize that they actually had done it before. They actually had cast out demons already. In Mark chapter 6, we're told that they had cast out many demons and healed many that were sick. And in Luke chapter 10, we're told they returned from a mission with joy, saying to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Jesus had given them power to cast out demons. He had given them the promise that they could do it. And by this time, he had already given them the proof that they could do it. And yet, here they were in this instance, in Matthew, unable to do it because of their little faith. Something had happened. 
We're going to look more at that little faith in just a moment. But I want to ask and answer the question, why is unbelief so grievous to Jesus? Why is little faith so grieving to our Lord? Why does it provoke such a startling rebuke from him here? Why is unbelief so bad? I want you to listen to Martin Luther on this, who I think got a hold of this truth really well. And I'm sorry I don't have this on the overhead for you, so you'll just have to listen well. Martin Luther said, Faith honors him who it trusts. If you're going to take notes, that's the line to write down right there, just so you get the idea that faith honors him who it trusts. With the most reverent and highest regard, since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. Luther says, in fact, there is no other honor, or yeah, no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. There's no higher honor, he says, than to trust someone. And yet, he writes, on the other hand, there is no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him as we do when we do not trust him. Okay, so in summary here, Luther's insight is this. Faith honors God by considering him truthful and trustworthy. And consequently, unbelief shows God the greatest contempt because it does not consider him truthful and trustworthy. And so what I'm trying to draw the connection for you here is is the connection between faith and worship. Trusting God is the most fundamental way that we glorify God. When you believe His Word, you honor His ability to do what He has promised, His willingness to do it, and His wisdom to know how to do it. You honor Him. You worship Him. And when you don't believe, you show him contempt, unable, unwilling, not good enough. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. Yesterday, I had to do battle against the unbelief of anxiety that this sermon would get done before I had to get up here and preach it. This is a anxiety familiar to many a preacher. There's a part of us that knows, by the time we get up here on Sunday morning, we're going to have something to preach. But there's another part of us that wrestles when we don't have as much time as we want. Because we feel like it's just not going to be good enough. If I had more time, I could make it better. You ever feel like that? If I just had more, if I could just do a little bit more, I could make it better. But you face the limitation. And so all day I battled against this anxiety, believing the promise, not resigning to the fact, not giving up, not just doing well the best I can, but believing. The promise of 2 Corinthians 12.8, God says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so I wrestled with that promise all day, trying to glorify God with it. And when I believed that promise, God's ability to help me, God's wisdom to help me, God's willingness to help me, then He was glorified. He was glorified in that wrestling, that fighting to believe, not because I felt it, not because I was certain of it, not because I, I'm like, oh, this is getting real good and we're making real good progress here. No, that wasn't, that's just emotions, that's just my circumstances. No, it was the fight to believe that glorified him because I was saying, you are true and trustworthy. 
against how I feel and against my circumstances and against all these blank pages staring in front of me. I'm believing in you, God. I'm counting on you, God. When you trust somebody, you honor them at the deepest level. And this is why unbelief and little faith are so grievous to Jesus. And this is also why battling unbelief It's not just kind of a plug-and-play thing. It's not just like, well, I'm struggling, but okay, put in the faith and I'm good to go. And it's not like a stir yourself up. This is not a bunch of guys in the locker room before a game, you know, kind of like, yeah, let's do this. Like, you don't come to church. Don't come, listen, don't come to church and try to get yourself riled up or stirred up for this week and all that's coming to you. That's just stirring up emotions. It's going to fall flat on the face when you hit the problems this week. That's not what it is. It's faith. It's believing. It's a, re- it's a relational thing. Do you consider God to be truthful and trustworthy? Whether you feel it or not. You wrestle for faith that glorifies God. And that's why unbelief is so offensive and so grievous to him. But it's His kindness that rebukes us. It's the goodness of His discipline that trains us up into righteousness. And so we have a spiritual problem that needs a startling rebuke. And now third, we have a significant lesson. A significant lesson, verses 19 through 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? What's the deal, Jesus? We've done this before. You've told us we could. Why couldn't we this time? And he said to them, verse 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this is such a a significant lesson for living in Jesus' kingdom. We have to learn what it means to live by faith. And to their credit, the disciples here, they want to learn. They came to Jesus and they asked, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus gives them the answer. The problem is because of your little faith. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is little faith? We've got to get this answer. This is really important. What is little faith? Because this gets right at the heart of the lesson. You can't learn this lesson if you can't answer the question, what is little faith? Now, to answer that, let me just point out here for a minute. If any of you use the NIV, the NIV, the New International Version translation of the Bible, verse 20 is translated, because of your so little faith. Because of your so little faith. But the word so isn't in the original Greek, and I think it's better to be left out like the ESV does it. And this is significant because so implies quantity. Because of your so little faith. So, it's just so little. But Jesus is not talking about quantity of faith here. Contrary to... Maybe how you've studied this out or thought about this passage before. Jesus is not talking about how much how much faith they had. This is not about how much faith they had. If he was, it makes no sense that the solution he prescribes to them is to have faith the size of a mustard seed, which was a popular saying in Jesus' day to indicate the smallest amount. So you see the conundrum there, if you think it has to do with quantity of faith? If the problem is little amount of faith, and the solution is, well, you need a little amount of faith, well, then what's the difference between the problem and the solution? What's the difference between bad little faith and good little faith? If the problem is quantitative, the little quantity of our faith, then what sense does it make for Jesus to turn around and say, actually, you need the smallest amount of faith possible? To do amazing things. That would make no sense at all. 
I've wrestled with this passage for years because I've just not ever understood this. And I was so excited this week when I came across uh, John, uh, a teaching by John Piper where he says that this is one of the passages he has wrestled most with over the years. And I thought, yes, that's so encouraging. And then I thought, oh, man, I've got to teach this. That's so discouraging. <laughs> uh, what's a preacher to do? But I was, I was further encouraged by my thinking on this because of what Jesus teaches in Luke 17, which is very similar. In Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, the apostles say to Jesus, Increase our faith! Make it bigger, Jesus! Tell us how to get more faith! And he replies to them, If you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't need increased faith. You don't need more faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed is large enough. It's not the size of your faith that matters. This is what Jesus is teaching. But it is the object of your faith. That's the point of this passage. Are you trusting in something little or something big? The problem is your little faith. You believe in something small. David Platt helpfully explains this when he writes, The disciples had likely begun to look at the ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability instead of on God. And aren't we just like the disciples here? I mean, isn't it that we... The fault in our life is that we try to do Christian things dependent upon ourselves. We try to do it in Jesus' name. And maybe we even want 90% of it to be done by God. But there's a good 10% there, at least, where we're relying on ourselves. Platt writes, Jesus pointed them in a different direction. The way of trusting in His power. By telling them that their faith need only be the size of a mustard seed, Jesus was urging them to focus on the object of their faith. A little bit of faith in a great God can accomplish great things. Friends, this is very encouraging if you feel like you have small faith, because small is all you need. A little bit of faith in a great God can accomplish great things. Even mountains, Jesus says, will be moved. Nothing is impossible for the man or woman who trusts in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. Even a little bit of faith in a great God can accomplish great things. In fact, it's interesting. If you search out the phrase little faith in Scripture, you're going to find it five times, and they're all in the Gospel of Matthew here. It's used five times to identify the little faith of Jesus' followers. And so I want you to listen to these passage, listen to these passages and, and hear them afresh. That it's not about quantity of faith, it's about the object of their faith. That the vision of God that they have is of a too little God, a small God. And so listen to these passages, and I'm going to categorize them, and you can notice what they deal with. First, first deals with disciples anxious about the necessities of life. Do you ever get anxious about the necessities of life? What you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to, where you're going to live. Well, Matthew 6.30, Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So little faith on display in disciples who are anxious over how they're going to make it. Second, disciples anxious about their safety, about their security, about their life. Jesus' disciples were in a boat with him on the sea when a storm blew over. Matthew eight twenty four through 26. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the seas, and there was a great calm. And the next verse actually says, and they worshiped him. Ah, their view of God was enlarged. 
Third, Peter walking on the water in response to our Lord's walking on the water and calling Peter out of the boat with him. Are you in a situation where God is calling you outside of yourself, calling you to do something beyond your capability? Well, this is for you. Peter goes out and he actually walks on the water for a little bit until his little faith kicks in. Matthew 14, verses 30 and 30, through, 30, through 32. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Fourth, the disciples, afraid because they forgot the bread. This was something we've studied recently. It is after the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They've seen Jesus feed multitudes of people with basically nothing, a creation miracle on two occasions. They're on the road. They're traveling it down it. And we're told they start arguing because they had forgot the bread. You know, so you picture them and they're like, you idiot. What? You forgot the bread. What are we supposed to eat? It wasn't my fault. It was his fault. He was supposed to bring it. Why didn't you bring it? I, I didn't bring it. You were supposed to go to the market. I didn't go to the market because I was praying for so-and-so. And they're arguing amongst each other about who forgot the bread, why it's forgotten. And Matthew 16, 8 and 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive who I am? What I have done? He says, Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And then the fifth and final category is our passage today. Their little faith and being able to cast out this demon. Now ask yourself, what do you see in each of these categories? What do you see in each of these instances? I'll tell you what you see. You see faith that fails at the point of testing. You see faith that fails at the point of testing. The bank account is full, and you're able to say, thank you, Lord, for taking care of us. But as soon as the bank account gets a little slim, you're full of anxiety. Because now your faith is tested. God has met your needs so many times, and we know from Scripture how important we are to Him, and yet still confronted with a new need, our faith so easily gives way to anxiety and unbelief. Will He do it again? I don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. I'm so worried about this. We feel safe when the sea is calm and the sun is shining and our Lord's awake and speaking to us, but let him fall asleep in the boat and a storm blow in and we forget who's in the boat with us. And we act like our safety is all dependent upon our own care and if we don't care for ourselves, then we're doomed. The Lord is walking on the water before our very eyes and he calls us out, walk with me, walk with me. And we even walk a portion of the way with him, but then we see the wind and the waves. We recognize the frailty of our position and how easily it is we could sink. And we begin to sink because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. When my faith has to operate in the realm of what I have not yet received, what I have not yet seen with my eyes, what what has not yet arrived for me, something outside of my own capacity, I can't walk on the water on my own. I can't provide all my needs on my own. I can't preserve my life on my own. When I can't cast out that demon, when I can't get through to my kid, when I can't get that promotion that I want, when I'm outside my capacity, I find there my faith tested and I don't trust God. I have little faith because I do not wholly trust the Lord. Again, it's not about the quantity of faith. It's about the object of your faith. When you find yourself struggling with anxiety or struggling with anger to try to get control of a situation or just struggling with despondency, hopelessness over a problem, it isn't that you're not trusting God enough. The problem is you are not trusting God himself. 
The problem is not that you are not trusting God enough. It's that you're not trusting God himself. Somewhere inside of you, you are trusting in yourself. You are trusting your circumstances or in someone else. But it is not God. The Apostle Peter, here on this day, learned this lesson very well. Which is why in his first letter, he writes to us saying that that trials test what? Not the size of your faith, but the genuineness of your faith. First Peter 1 7. The tested genuineness of your faith. How genuine is it? To illustrate something of all of this in a positive way, what does faith what does faith look like then? in those trial-testing moments. Well, to help illustrate that a little bit, let me give you a story from the life of the missionary John Patton. He was a remarkable man. If you've ever read the accounts of his life, he was incredibly brave. Uh, He was a missionary in the mid-1800s when he left native Scotland to serve the natives of the South Seas on the New Hebrides Island. He was very brave because they were cannibals. And so he went there at great risk to his own life, and he was criticized harshly for wanting to go there. I mean, people, would just come, people would come up, like many of us would probably if, if one of our young people wanted to do this, just like, do you know how dangerous it is? Do you know how foolish that is? I mean, you're going to die there. This is not safe. One Mr. Dixon exploded on him one day saying, the cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! And understand, this is not just an esoteric kind of fear that they had. 19 years, only 19 years earlier, missionaries had been killed by this same group of people. Cannibalized. And so these are very real concerns. But John Patton was full of faith and a bit ornery, we might think. His response, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They are to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus... It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton was a remarkable man of faith and courage. He did go to the New Hebrides. And uh, an important story from his time there was he was learning the language and began to translate the Gospel of John But he ran into a problem translating it because uh, there was no word in their language for faith or trust. And one of John's favorite expressions is to believe in, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus Christ. And so he had no way to translate this word. He could not figure out how to do it. Uh, The natives had little concept of the idea of trust. And so... Sitting at his desk one day, he was puzzling over this, and Patton turned to his translator and asked him, What am I doing? And the man replied in the native tongue, You are sitting at a desk. Then Patton raised both his feet off the floor and sat back on his chair, putting his whole weight, right? He said to him, Tell me, what am I doing now? And the servant replied in the native tongue with a verb that meant to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. And that, Patton realized, was the word he needed to translate believe in. Faith. Faith is leaning your whole weight on God. It's trusting in Him. Taking your feet off the ground and putting your whole weight back into the chair. 
It's trusting in his word completely. Faith is expecting everything from God and nothing from ourselves. It's trusting fully in his promises, in his word. It's leaning wholly on Christ's sufficiency and not on our own. Quite simply, faith is like the father in this story who had already seen his son unable to be delivered by the disciples and yet he does not stop. He fights through that crowd. He throws himself before Jesus and he prays, Oh Lord, have mercy. That is a significant lesson for us all. Which brings us to the conclusion, and we must brush through this very quickly. Verses 22 through 23. Uh, Verse 21 is probably not in your Bible because they've since taken it out, realizing that it probably was not the most authentic um, and originally uh, in it. Uh, But verses 22 and 23 say, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So far we've seen a spiritual problem, a startling rebuke, a significant lesson, and we could call this concluding little verses here a a sober preparation. A sober preparation. These verses are included here, and, and they very soberly prepare the disciples for what is to come, that Jesus will be handed over to the, to men and be killed. And the, point, the purpose of this, the point is this, is that when that day came, they needed a word to believe in. That Jesus would be raised again on the third day. Jesus in his kindness was already preparing them for what they would need, a word to believe in. And so this was a sober preparation for them. They didn't get it yet. They were greatly distressed. But for us on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we might return this a sweet reminder. This is a sweet reminder because the gospel is the reason why we can know we can trust God always. This is why we can know God is true and trustworthy. The gospel is all our assurance. Everything about it happened just as Jesus foretold that it would. His word is true and it is trustworthy. And more than that, the gospel reveals the heart of God to us, that he is good, able to give up even his own son to death to save enemies like you and me. It reveals the wisdom of God, that he knows what is best and how to work all things together for our good. And it reveals the power of God to us, that even us he can save, and even us he can save to the utmost. So brothers and sisters, we can trust him. Why? Because of Jesus. Why? Because of the gospel. We can lean all our weight upon him and upon his word. And brothers and sisters, he will prove himself true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, this is a sweet and significant word for us today. And I know that you are here strengthening faith, Lord, and revealing the Son to people here today, Lord, to all of us. And so, God, I pray that we would leave with faith strengthened that glorifies you, that honors you as true and trustworthy, seen most principally through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand with me now.